0: Let's get started this morning. We are uh, on our second week of talking about the Christian and mental health. Let's begin with prayer, and then we will jump into our study for this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is good, that your word speaks to things uh, beyond uh, what The natural revelation of the world, the observations that we make beyond what we can learn from those things, uh, we can learn from you. And so I pray that as we uh, talk about the mind, as we talk about the way we uh, process things, the the suffering that we experience in this fallen world, I pray that you would help us to have clarity that comes only from your word, which sees those things that no human eye, no human technology can ever see. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as the title of the series is Body and Soul, one of the things that we're doing as we talk about mental health is processing the interaction between our body and our soul. Because when we talk about mental illness sort of things, these are things that Our contemporary world would locate entirely in the physical body because our contemporary world doesn't really have a category for the soul. Our contemporary world believes something called monism, uh, only, mono, uh, where we're just one part. As humans, we're just bodies. We are a bunch of molecules randomly running into each other, and whatever happens is just a part of our deterministic universe. it just everything flows from everything else. And so if that's the category that you're seeing humanity in, every single challenge of the mind is going to be a challenge of biology. Whereas as uh, evangelical Christians, orthodox Christians, have held to one of two views that's different from that. There is uh, uh, dichotomy and trichotomy. Dichotomy being that we are body and soul. Trichotomy that we are body, soul, and spirit. The debate between those two views isn't particularly relevant to this discussion by the fact that we're calling it body and soul. You might be inclined to take the assumption that I'm a dichotomist. That's the typical, most standard position. But it's not something that we're denying the gospel one way or another, uh, whether we believe in two or three. And it's not particularly relevant to what we're talking about here. But in that interaction of body and soul as two-part beings, we are going to find a lot of answers to the things that are going on in our mind, the things that are going on in our invisible parts, the things that no one else can see around us. So looking at this issue of mental health, the struggles we have in our mind, we must remember that as a result of the fall, we are all dysfunctional. We're dysfunctional. Now I choose that term dysfunctional on purpose because I'm not trying to apply any moral weight at this point. Now it's also true that we are all morally corrupted, right? So that that is certainly true. Now arguing that's not true, but we are dysfunctional in the sense that we have things that don't function properly that may not be sin. Okay, so for example, cancer is a dysfunction of the body it's a product of the fall it is not a sin to have cancer right so we have these dysfunctions these things that aren't working correctly and that's because we are living in a cursed world as a result of the fall and so as we're talking about dysfunctions of the mind it's possible that those dysfunctions are more natural And it's possible that they're more spiritual, that they have a a spiritual sin component. So we're going to talk through uh, how we make that, draw that line. Different types of dysfunction require different responses because some of those dysfunctions are simply weaknesses, right? So take, for example, and we'll reference back to this throughout, Alzheimer's, right? Alzheimer's is a dysfunction. It is something that is bad, it is not a sin to get Alzheimer's, but then we have other dysfunctions that are entirely sinful, and we're going to respond to those dysfunctions in different ways. Some problems require confrontation and a call to repentance. Can you get us some more chairs? <laughs> uh, probably go to C train. Um, so, some problems are going to demand that we call sinners to repentance some problems are going to demand that we provide comfort for living in a fallen world, right? So so no one thinks that we ought to go to the man with Alzheimer's and rebuke him for sinfully having his brain neurons not firing correctly. At the same time, no one thinks, I shouldn't say no one thinks, we shouldn't think that we ought to go to the murderer and comfort him for his dysfunction of murdering. So we understand there's a difference between these two things. How do we rightly evaluate those things? The foundation of rightly evaluating our dysfunction is grounded in biblical anthropology. Anthropology being the study of man, the doctrine of man. If we're going to properly interact with these dysfunctions of the mind, we need to have a biblical understanding of who we are. Last week, we, we talked about that, particularly looking in the first three chapters of Genesis, which say many, many, many things about us. If you weren't here last week, uh, that uh, audio is available online. You can, you can catch up that way. But today, I want to specifically talk about this body and soul distinction, that we are body and soul. So first of all, we are body. I say we are body, it means we have a, a physical component, a material component. And scripture makes this clear in a lot of different places. It talks about our body. It talks about our, our physical being. Uh, it says that we are formed from matter. Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. So man is formed of the dust, of the ground, man has a material component. This verse also, though, gets to the other side, right? Man has a material component, but what makes his material component different from anyone else? The Lord God breathed life into him. So he has this breathed life from the Lord and this physical life also from the Lord. But we see this contrast between the material and the immaterial part of the man. He is body. He is also soul. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. So there is a beginning and an ending in the material world. Uh, We start from dust. We go to dust. But the Holy Spirit also indwells the bodies of believers. So again, we see this contrast, body and soul. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. God saw everything that he had made. Sorry, I skipped to my next verse on the list. Uh, do Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God, You are not your own. So we have a body. That body becomes a dwelling place for the spirit. So again, there's this idea. Mankind has a material being. And then there's also this immaterial. The spirit dwells in us. We would not expect that at the autopsy of a Christian, you find the spirit in them. Right? We're not saying this is material. There's not like this hole that the spirit was. And then you die and it disappears. And you're like, wow, what was there? This is not something physical about us. There is a physical and spiritual component to us. I'd also add an important understanding of the body coming from Genesis chapter one, verse thirty-one. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God, upon creating the body of man, looks at it and says, "Very good." This is in contrast to some of the the Platonic thought, uh, the thought of Plato, the Greek philosopher, the early Gnostics that affected uh, the early church that believed in this duality between body and soul where the body was bad and the soul was good. Right, this is a false teaching that's plagued the church throughout history. It creeps in occasionally today where you see hints of it. It's not so much formalized into a system that we deal with in the church, but the idea that the body is bad, the spirit is good, so we're just trying to get to the point where the spirit triumphs over the body. Before the fall of man, God looks at the body, says, This is good. After the consummation, when everything is restored or at the consummation, when everything is restored, the Lord reunites body and soul and the resurrection. And so our bodies are not bad. Our bodies are created and they are good. But living in a fallen world, there are all sorts of bad things that happen in the context of our bodies. We are not just a body. We are also a soul, a spirit, a heart. All these words can be used interchangeably, I believe, throughout Scripture. Again, this is where some people disagree. Dichotomy, trichotomy, not our point this morning, but soul, spirit, and heart. Genesis 35, 18 tells us the spirit departs from the body at death. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Okay, so not a the whole uh, death of Rachel account isn't super important to our whole story, but what you can see in that verse is that when Rachel dies, what happens? Her her spirit departs. Uh, the spirit is dealt with as a as something that acts within us. Uh, John thirteen twenty one. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, "Truly, I say to you." One of you will betray me. So Jesus experiences trouble within his spirit. So there's this idea of, of the, the troubled spirit. This is, again, not the only place in the Bible where that happens. So the spirit is this place of trouble, a place of emotion with inside us. There is a distinction between the body and the soul. We're not just one. Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear, that, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So Jesus says, don't fear the people who can only kill the body, but not the soul. And so this, if you just look at the first half, might lead us to this primacy of the soul. Don't be afraid of people who can kill the body, but be afraid of people who can kill the soul. But that's not actually the point he makes. So the second half says, but be concerned of the one who can kill both body and soul. So it's not as if he's, he's uh, giving primacy to the soul over the body, but he's saying that they both matter. Be concerned about the one who can destroy the body and the soul and hell. The soul experiences change and growth, 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, our body is was- wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. As everyone in this room is aging, and there's no Benjamin Buttons in here, I don't think, Uh, everyone in this world is aging, it is a great encouragement that as we feel the body slipping away, that does not mean the soul also is slipping away. And this verse gives us this comfort that our outer self is may waste away, but our inner self may be renewed day by day. So the person with the body that is as broken as can be, can be renewed in their mind. Their inner self can be maturing. Their inner self can be prospering in Christ. So there is this distinction between inner self and outer self. Outer self can, can fade away while inner self prospers. Our life what we do flows out of the inner man, out of the heart. Proverbs 4.26. Uh, I wrote the wrong reference down here, so I'm going to look at I'll, I'll just quote it in King James because that's how I memorized it. Uh, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I think it's actually Proverbs 4.23. Uh, so the issues of life, the, the things that we do, flow out of our heart. And so there's this idea of the inner man which affects the outer man. So we have this distinction. We are both inner man, outer man, soul, body, spirit, body, heart, body, all of these different language, all these different words are really referring to the the same idea that we have material and immaterial parts. But we would be wrong to take this immaterial and material and split it entirely. As if I'm a body that has a soul or a soul that has a body. The the scriptures do not give us this primacy that one matters and the other one doesn't. Now, scripture does say eternity matters more than this earth. But what ultimately happens in eternity is a union of body and soul again. We have resurrection bodies, so it's not as if the body doesn't matter, only the soul matters. Eternity matters more than this earth matters. So there is a unity, though, between body and soul. Though man is made of both immaterial and material parts, he is a unity. So we cannot say, my body made me do it. My body is the thing that's causing me to sin. Because we're not split up like that. We don't have the good half and the bad half. We don't have this duality inside of us that the good guy does this thing and the bad guy does this thing. You hear it with people who are suddenly and unexpectedly criminals it wasn't me that did that like it's not like me to do this i lost control i was i was drunk or i was on drugs or whatever that's not me that would do something like this yes it is you are one person you don't have this this multiple essence going on that your body is a different person from your spirit Uh, Millard Erickson in his systematic theology says the normal state of a human is as a materialized unitary being. He says that normal state because there is a point in which there is a division between body and soul, a separation that's in death. When the soul leaves the body, the body remains. Is that the permanent state of humanity? No, that is temporary. We look forward to the time. 1 Corinthians 15 expresses this. We look forward to the time when our body is rejoined with our soul. That's who we are supposed to be for eternity. For eternity, we are body and soul together. The normal state of human is materialized, unitary being. James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also Faith apart from works is dead. When our body is separated from our spirit, that is death. It is not the way it is supposed to be. It is a temporary thing that will one day be fixed. And we look forward to that day where body and soul are reunited in resurrection. As we follow Christ, who is the first fruits of our resurrection, that's the normal existence of a human. Body and soul together, not split apart, not as if one is good and one is bad and we're just defeating the other, but as a unity. And how encouraging is it that the gospel provides hope for both body and soul? The gospel is the good news for both of our parts. There is resurrection in Christ, our body, which fades away, groans, longing for the adoption of sons. We look forward to a time when our body is restored, when all of the follicles on my head function as they are intended to function. Someday, someday that will happen when you can eat the food that tastes good to your mouth and it will be good for the rest of you. All right. We we look forward to those days when your heart beats at the right speed, at the right times, with the right pressure. That's happening in the future. And so there's this longing that happens in this fallen world that is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. It's functioning the way it does because mankind rebelled against his creator and the world is now under a curse and we live with its effects. The gospel provides hope. The gospel provides hope for the sufferer with cancer, for the person who deals with Alzheimer's. For the person who struggles with any number of body dysfunctions, the gospel provides hope because it is a gospel of body and soul. It's a gospel of the whole person. We also have hope that our fallen mind can be renewed. Uh, first, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There is a hope for change in our mind. There's a hope for renewal. There's some hope for change in our bodies, right? Uh, Most of us have probably tried a diet at one time or another and seen a a measure of success. Most of us have also stopped trying the diet and have seen that success be reversed, right? Because we're not actually solving the problem when we go on a diet. The problem is that our body does not line up with our taste buds. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. And so, we can have hope that we we fix some things in our body like we go to the doctor expecting the doctor to help us deal with whatever malady that we have but when it comes down to it ultimately our hope is fading because you get to a point and the doctor has a different strategy the doctor's strategy is to give you the best quality of life not a good quality of life the best quality of life that you can for a person who is as old as you are who has had as many problems as you have had. So that hope fades, yet our fallen mind can be renewed. That our our inner mind, our inner man can be renewed. We can grow, we can mature. 80-year-olds might be exempt from fixing their body. They're not exempt from seeing their soul renewed. They're not exempt from the work of Christ in their soul. And so we talk about this this distinction, and now let's pull over into mental health, to our topic in this series. How does the mind and body function in life? As embodied souls, our life will involve complex interactions of both immaterial and material. We are embodied souls. Both the immaterial and the material function within us, and that's going to have complex and significant effects. If we are unitary beings of body and soul, we have parts, but they are unified. We would expect the soul to affect the body and the body to affect the soul. They don't function entirely distinctive from each other. I can make choices with my body that affect my soul. Sin. Sin. That's exactly what it is. If I sin in my body, it has an effect on my soul. I can make uh, choices in my soul that affect my body. I can do things that are sinful and have an effect on my my body. They're they're connected to one another. But we must understand the body is the mediator rather than the initiator of our actions. That's from Ed Welch and his book, Blame It on the Brain, which is really, really helpful on these issues. If you want to Pick up that book. It covers a lot of what we're talking about here. But the body is the mediator rather than the initiator of our actions. It is in my soul that I make choices. It is in my soul that I uh, must be renewed so that I think rightly, and that trickles down into the body. That's not to say that things we do to our body can't affect our soul. But ultimately, my soul is where my heart is, where my body is controlled. They're a unity, but my soul has control. That's important for us to understand because uh, my body as a mediator is going to be affected. My body can be weak, illness, fatigue. How many of you are just as godly when you're exhausted as when you're wide awake? Probably no one right? Definitely not your children, right? You, you see this most clearly in children who don't have the skills to hide what's going on in their heart, where, I mean, they turn into a pumpkin at a certain point in time, and they're, they're going to struggle, right? You, you have emotional challenges, anxieties, anger, because they're, they're tired. That also happens to us as adults, doesn't it? Where our body is ill, or our body is fatigued, that has a trickle down effect on our soul. Is illness and fatigue a sin? No, it's a weakness that we have, but it has a, Excuse me, it has an effect on us. Our body can be limited. Uh, our memory is limited. Okay, how many of you have forgotten to do something good? And you you forget. Oh, I was going to do this. I forgot. Is forgetting a sin? No. Is failing to keep a promise of sin is this not being a person of your word of sin yes but there's an interaction right there between the sin and the not sin right where my memory failing is not in and of itself sinful me not taking the precautions necessary to stop my memory from failing so that I can be a person of my word my yes is yes and my no is no there we're dealing with a sin but that memory slippage is not in and of itself sinful how about cognitive decline? As you get older, and what we would call senility, Alzheimer's, dementia, those category of diseases, and some of them not even diseases, just the natural result of all people aging, as your mental power declines, is that sinful? No, it's not. It is a limitation of your body. Is it, a limit? Is it sinful that some of you in this room can sit down with a book, read it quickly, and, and synthesize and understand the information in the book. Whereas other people, it is labor to read. I went to a seminary with a girl. Her, her name was, was Jessica. She finished undergrad and an MDiv, which is like a three or four year seminary degree. She finished both of them in four years while working full time. This is a girl who, it it was, yeah, the face that you made, Lily, is exactly how it felt to go to school with her. Yeah. Uh, This is a girl who could take the deepest, most technical theology textbook, read it, and understand it instantly. Whereas, you guys all know this feeling of reading the same paragraph six times, and on the sixth time you understand it like 10% more than you did on the first time, but you just keep on reading it, trying to sort it out. We've all been there. I don't think she had that category of thinking. She was just brilliant and was able to process information so quickly. Was my need to read slowly and carefully versus her ability to read very quickly a sin issue between the two of us? No. It's just a difference in the way that our bodies function. The the neurons in her brain worked differently than the neurons in my brain. It's not a sin issue. have sin implications if i'm coveting her brain neurons over my brain neurons if i'm lazy because i feel frustrated like there's all sorts of ways where i can sin in the context of my body's limitations but they're simply limitations Uh, we also have dependencies in our body we have needs and urges and again those needs and urges are not necessarily sinful but they do give an opportunity for the, the, the old man doing war against the new man to have success, right? So is it a sin to be hungry? Well, clearly it's not. Is it a sin to binge eat? I would say, yes, it is. Then there's the complicated middle ground. Is it a sin to want to binge eat? <laughs> I would say, yes, if I'm desiring to sin, even if I'm saying no to that desire, that desire itself is sinful, and so in this complex relationship between body and mind, we're going to be in some difficult areas. We're going to be in some gray areas where we need to tread with humility, but we cannot give up the high ground of the Bible. We cannot simply locate everything as a body problem and say, don't worry about your soul, just fix your body and then you won't sin anymore. That is completely contrary to scripture and completely in line with what our society says about these problems. With what our society says about these problems. On the other hand, It would be foolish for us to ignore the bodily needs and say everything is purely a spiritual problem because some of these body problems need to be addressed the the example that i I lean on the most is your child who has not eaten and is being a grump because they haven't eaten what should you do call them to repentance and give them a snack don't just call them to repentance And leave them starving so that they continue to do wrong as a result of their inability to control themselves. But understand when I say inability to control themselves, it's not actually an inability. They're choosing to do wrong. So you also must address the soul. Don't give them a snack and not call them to repentance, but don't call them to repentance and not give them a snack. They are complex mixtures of body and soul that are functioning in a unity the heart ought to control the body rather than the body controlling the heart do you not know that in a race this is 1 corinthians 9 24 through 27 do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it every athlete exercises self-control in all things they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul says, I've got a body. That body is prone to disqualify me. Therefore, I control that body. So there is this expectation that the heart must exercise dominion over the body. And this is good news because the body has no promise of earthly reformation, but the heart can be renewed. And so as we have this conflict between body and soul, what great hope there is in the gospel because the gospel provides hope for my inner man, even when my outer man will continue to get worse for the rest of my life. And so there's this hope that's provided through the gospel of Christ, that the heart can control the body rather than the body controlling the heart. And so in all of this, we need to distinguish between the ideas of sin and weakness. Some dysfunctional actions are commanded or forbidden by Scripture. To violate those commands or prohibitions is sin when we are told not to do something or to do something, to violate that is sin. But not all dysfunctions fit into that category. Because some dysfunctional actions are negative, but do not violate the commands and prohibitions of Scripture and are better thought of as weaknesses. Some of our dysfunctions are not violations of Scripture. Those are Weaknesses. Those are things that we struggle with. But properly categorizing sin and weakness is essential for a God honoring response to our dysfunction. We must comfort those who are weak and confront, call to repentance those who are sinful. The answer to my sin is not feeling more comfortable in my sin. The answer to my sin is not saying, oh, it's okay that you're sinful that is not how christ deals with sin right christ deals with sin at great personal cost because he he doesn't or but he doesn't minimize it instead he he shows how serious it is and he takes care of it right we would tend to think oh it's not a big deal is the answer to someone who's struggling But Jesus says, it's so big that I'm going to take it for you because you can't possibly bear it. And so the gospel deals with sin, not by minimizing it, but by putting it in its right severity and then dealing with it. So as we're dealing with sinners, we cannot respond with simple comfort. Oh, this is okay. This is okay. This is okay. It's not okay. Our sin is never okay. There is never a situation where no matter how difficult the situation of our body, how trying our circumstances are, there is never a time where we say, yes, but sin is not that big of a deal because of how much you're struggling with your body. It doesn't work. Sin is always treason against the creator. Always. Yet, knowing that our body creates struggles and suffering should call us to compassionate comfort in those areas so splitting up splitting the difference between these is a a vital importance for us so let's think through some issues some are going to be easy some are going to be hard broken bones is that a sin or a weakness so it's a weakness right like it's not a sin to have your bones broken now can your sin result in broken bones I would say uh, uh, that that happens with fairly great regularity when children are told "don't do this thing" and they think "I should do this thing," and this thing happens to be something that hurts them, right? But is the broken bone a sin? No. How about uh, here? Here's an interesting one: unwed pregnancy. Is that a sin? Unwed pregnancy. Premarital pregnancy. The pregnancy is not a sin. Pregnancy is not a sin. Is it the result of a sin? Sure. It's one of the reasons why the uh the hostility towards unwed pregnant women is a really, really bad idea. Right? Now, should we be clear on sin? Yes, but that physical situation of being pregnant is not the sin. It is a result of sin. And we need to make a distinction between that so that we aren't comforting the sin, but we are comforting the, the challenges that come with the pregnancy. All right. Uh, another one. Panic. Is panic a sin? I would say usually no. Right. It might be a, a a result of a fundamental attitude that we have of distrust and faithlessness. But panic is kind of a a natural body response, right? Have you ever been driving down the road and some semi pulling a semi behind it backwards is in front of you? And you're you're driving along just normal, happy, and suddenly it looks like there's a semi driving right towards you? Am I the only person who that's happened to? That initial uh, adrenaline dump is actually a self-defense mechanism. It says, wake up, take care of the situation that you're in. It's not a sin. Does panic often result in sinfulness? Absolutely. And so, again, complex, but we understand that there's a difference. Anger. Anger. Again, sometimes. Be. Right? Sometimes right? And so, there's, <laughs> and what is anger? Right? That, that's another important question that, that we ask. Because the most angry person in the Bible is God. Now, my anger is in a very different category. And the warnings of Scripture on my anger ought to make me incredibly hesitant to justify my anger. But the, how about the bodily function of your blood pressure increasing because of your displeasure? Now, I'd say this is where we get into some term struggles. What we might call anger might not be the biblical term for anger. But the displeasure that I feel at wrong being done is not sinful. It could be sinful even if it is, just, even if it is directed in the right direction. But the, the actual physical responses of increased blood pressure, that, that sort of stuff, those are, those are physical things. Fear? Fear's a body thing, but it's also something we're not supposed to have, the spirit of fear, right? So we've gotta understand that there, there's some differences. There's a, there's a disease called Urbach-Wethy disease, which is actually a chemical problem that very few people have, very, very rare, but they are physically, and enca- their brain does not fire the things that are fear. So there's this, this case study that's been talked about quite a bit. They're very secretive about the identity of the person, Because if you know someone experiences no fear, you can manipulate that person very badly, right? Like you're walking down a dark alley and a bunch of uh, men carrying baseball bats come towards you. It's probably good you are able to experience fear because it causes you to make some different decisions. However, there's this spirit of fear that's forbidden. There's this faithlessness that is forbidden. A lack of concentration. Okay, what we might call ADHD at times, if we're using a modern diagnostic model, is a lack of concentration a sin? No. Can it be a result of sin? Right? Can it be something that needs to be my soul, my, my heart ought to control my body? I will discipline my body to turn from this weakness? Absolutely. But it, it may be a body weakness. Confusion. Confusion, again, a body problem, but it can have a sin problem. Take someone with Alzheimer's who is confused. That's a natural result of the dysfunction of their brain. If they sin in that confusion, it's still sin. Right? So the angry person with Alzheimer's, the anger, sinful anger, is still sinful, even if the body problem is real. And so do you see how we might need to have a complex approach to that person? Comfort in the body problem. Confrontation in the sin problem. We cannot comfort sin, and we cannot confront body. We have to navigate this this challenging place. Uh, Disobedience to parents. Sin. Does it often come from a place of body issues? Hunger. Tiredness. Absolutely. But again, we're drawing careful lines here between the two of them. Hallucinations, sin, or suffering. I say it's it's suffering. How how do you help a schizophrenic who thinks their mailman's going to kill them? Well, on the one hand, you might want to convince them that their mailman doesn't want to kill them. Change your meds. Yeah. <laughs> on the on the other hand, on the other hand. You might want to ask, so if your mailman wants to kill you, how would a Christian respond? How how do you respond with godliness? Now, we want to fix the delusion, but the the delusion may be a body problem. It might be a spiritual problem, too, right? We're dealing with complexities. They might be choosing to believe a lie, but be holy. Be holy. You're dealing with someone with, with depression. Well, how do you be godly? while your body feels like it just cannot come up for air. You need to be godly, okay? So we're, we're understanding there's this gap between body and soul that we need to be sensitive to. The interconnectedness of body and heart means that we expect one to influence the other. Like they are going to have an interaction with each other. Their unity cannot be reduced to everything being body, everything being heart. It is actually an influence back and forth. So if we're going to help someone who's dealing with these things, it requires us to be sensitive to both sides. The comfort that should be provided in weakness, the confrontation that should be provided in sinfulness. We cannot leave one and only focus on the other. Our body can't make us sin. It can only make us suffer. Our body cannot make us sin. It can only make us suffer. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We can face deep, painful, bodily shortcomings and not sin. This is a promise given to us by God in his word so as we're dealing with this complex interaction between the two our society's impulse is pure compassion everything's okay i'm not going to tell you to fix this oh you're feeling depressed okay well i'm just pure empathy on on depression i'm not going to tell you to get a job because that wouldn't be empathetic right that that's the world we live in the gospel gives us something much better It says, look, your body, it's going to be restored. There's groaning and longing right now in the world. Your body is suffering, but we suffer with hope in the body and hope for the soul. Renew your mind. Turn to Christ. There is no temptation that does not have a way of escape. And so as we're trying to deal with the people around us and we're trying to dissect the challenges of what's body and what's soul, and it's really hard, and we're not gonna finish a six-week Sunday school series and have the answer to all of these questions of is this body, is this soul? It's actually hard, but that doesn't actually change my response that much because my response, whether it's body or soul, is to come in, with a level of compassion, even on soul problems, because they're but for the grace of God go I. But I come in and say, all right, here's the situation. What does godliness look like? What does godliness look like? The hope of the depressed person is not deliverance from their depression. It's holiness. And that might include a change in the mood that they are experiencing. The hope for the schizophrenic is not deliverance from schizophrenia. The hope for the schizophrenic is holiness, the renewal of the mind that comes through Christ. And I really want them to not deal with voices in their head as well. But that's not the hope that I can offer. That's not the promise I have to give. The hope for the person with heart disease is not a heart transplant. It's not health. The hope for that person is godliness and one day a restoration. Something that we are not promised. We cannot go to a person who is suffering in this world and promise them deliverance from their suffering in this world. But we can call them to what is available to them, which is holiness in Christ, that they can suffer deeply and not sin. They can have deep trials of the soul and not sin. But we're going to have to come in with, with some care that's, that's digging into these things, that's, that's compassionate, but also uh, calling to holiness and loving them, truly loving them, not loving them as our society says, loving and just affirming everything that they think, but loving them in a way that calls them to the things that matter most, which is their personal <clears throat> holiness in Christ and their hope in Christ, the hope that their deliverance will come. It will come, but it might not come now. And it doesn't change their responsibility to be whole. All right. Uh, We are out of time for this morning. I keep thinking I would like to end in time for questions, but uh, it's not happening yet. So if you have questions, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I'll be happy to talk through those. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to... Uh, Navigate these things well, Uh, that we would love people enough to confront their sinfulness while having compassion on their suffering, that we would have the wisdom to, uh, with accuracy, see areas of sin, areas of suffering, be able to tell the difference, uh, understand that uh, body and soul both matter. They are both given by you. And that even while we don't have the necessary hope of the renewal of our body in this life, we can hope and the renewal of our mind, the renewal of our heart and soul. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen.